I bow to God in his infinite form and in each of you. Today I want to talk about something a little bit startling. Because you think of the great gurus as always talking about sadhana and um, superconsciousness and all these inner things. But one thing about my Guruji was that his interest was also very cosmic. And uh, he talked about the universe. He talked about so many things. There was a very interesting uh, few questions that occurred in conversations with him that I'd like to share with you. 1949, I'd been with him a year, saw a worldwide stir of recent sightings of flying saucers, as they were called, or UFOs, unidentified flying objects. The newspapers generally made light of the reports, but Paramhansa Yogananda's brief comment was, what people have seen is true. Those phenomena are not imaginary. About interplanetary travel, he once said, Modern man thinks that everything must be accomplished by physical force. There are many subtler forces in nature. These will come to light as the general sensitivity of man becomes more refined. Someday it will be a simple matter to travel from Earth to Mars or to other planets. If man can progress from the bullet cart method of traveling to flying at hundreds of miles an hour, it will be easy for him in future to find ways of locomotion that will take him like electricity from planet to planet. In Conversation 37, the universe, he once comment, commented, is teeming with life. Even what people think of as barren planets are manifestations of consciousness and therefore are not really dead. God's consciousness is at the heart of every atom, ever seeking to express itself outwardly. All life gradually evolves toward outward expression. Materialistic science believes that life appears only by accident out of a mere combination of chemicals. Spiritual science, however, discovered long ago that at the heart of everything dwells the infinite consciousness. And one more, 38. In Los Angeles, perhaps during the month of February 1951, there was a succession of unusually heavy rains. One day the master commented, well, this is better at least than worlds where it is always raining or where the sun never stops shining. You know, in his presence, Somehow the whole universe began to seem like home. He didn't treat this world as something separate from the great reality. He was at home everywhere. The consciousness of a great master is omnipresent. He's as much in the most distant star as he is right here. And that consciousness is what he would, uh, he strived always to implant in us. Don't think always of just your limited realities, your limited home, your country. This isn't 
the whole thing at all. But living with him, it was sort of like, in a way, expanding our consciousness to infinity. Yes, we had to do it in meditation, sure, but it, it's certainly helpful. You know, even to think of the Vedantic truths is expanding to the mind. We don't necessarily have that consciousness, but to know that that's our potential helps us to break that barrier, that limitation that keeps us from thinking we can. And that's a large part of it. One time he said, just the simple thought that you are not free is what keeps you from being free. We need to live in the thought that we are free right now, that nothing can hold us. We are not who we think we are. We are not our attachments, our possessions. And so it's a very good thing, the discoveries of modern astronomy, for example. I wanted to be an astronomer when I was a child just because of that expansive thought that comes with it. This he helped us to perceive that the, the universe is a part of our own selves. You know, it's all in the mind. It's all a delusion. There's no time or space. The most distant galaxy is no farther away than your own hand. It's all right here. We need to think that way. We need to realize that in the reality, this moment is eternal. How many planets you have lived on, how many universes you have been in. You have been all over. There's a question, I'll probably come to it soon in another reading, where I asked him, those people who are in higher yugas, um, those people who are here now, when a higher yuga comes, are they still coming to this planet? He said, no, there are many planets to go to. You read about all these UFOs and it becomes very exciting and so on. It's nothing exciting. The thing that you must always remember, however, is that wherever the ego is, there is bondage. You can have the most sattvic universe. You can have the most beautiful planets. You can have the most Edenic garden, paradise on earth. But as long as you're stuck in your ego, you're still prisoned. What we've got to do is get away from that. Otherwise, there's always going to be the inconvenience of having this, this uh, reference to yourself all the time. If you can just forget that, then you're in heaven. Until then, the most beautiful places won't really do it. I remember one time I went hiking with a friend of mine, and we were sitting on a mountaintop, Mount Waterman, it was called, is called, in, outside Los Angeles. And... It was one of the most beautiful scenes I have ever beheld. The sun was setting in the west, and it was casting a golden glow all over a slight mist in the valleys. Then in the east, the moon was rising, and in the valleys on that side, there was this sort of blue, shimmering light of the moon. And this friend of mine looked at it with me, and he said, if only I could feel it. You know, that's the trouble. We're stuck in this body. We can't get out of it and just be a part of it. There's always this reference back to the discomfort of the body, the, the ants crawling around our legs, the hunger in our stomach, the, all the disadvantages of having a body. Really, we, we think that the body is a blessing only because you're used to it. 
but it really becomes a great burden to the spirit. When you can rise above that, then you can begin to really appreciate things because you become them. How do you really get to enjoy anything? You become it. It isn't you here and that there. You are a part of it. This is how my great guru always was. He could enjoy all things because he became all things. I remember one time walking with him out at his desert compound at 29 Palms, and uh, he had been dictating his commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita, and he was in a very abstract, gyanic state of consciousness. And uh, at a certain point I had to hold him, because he, he was swaying. And then he started walking again, and he said, it's so hard to remember which body to keep walking because I'm in all bodies. This kind of consciousness, this freedom from being in one. He went when he went in his last years. He, had, he took the burden, karmic burdens of many disciples. And uh, he underwent a certain illness, as many great masters do toward the end of their lives, taking on the karma, the burdens of their uh, disciples. And... Uh, he was saying, uh, one day after he'd been in, in his rooms for a while, he came out and I said, oh, it's so good to see you walking. And he said, yes, it's nice to walk, but some people have bodies but can't walk everywhere. He could walk everywhere. He could walk into our hearts, and that was the most important thing of all. I found that the least little thought that I had, I remember one of the disciples, he used to pray in his meditation. His name was... Uh, Michael Krull, or he became Brother Bhaktananda later on. And uh, he used to pray to our guru, just the simple prayer, I love you, guru, I love you. And he saw our guru walking on the path, and the guru looked at him lovingly and said, I love you too. How many times I found that in my meditations, little thoughts that I had, little flickers, he would answer. One time in the public church there, he was giving a talk, and... Uh, he answered some little doubt or dilemma that I'd had in my own mind, a question that I wanted answered. And I, I felt so grateful, and I, I mentally expressed my gratitude. And I, looked, I saw that he just looked at me with a quick smile and then looked away. He knew. He was in all our minds. What a freedom it is not to be tied down to this ego and this body, which limits us so much so that everything we see we relate back to ourselves. If we could forget this self and grow into that consciousness that we are a part of all selves, then there is a certain sense of, of completion. You know, one of the big things on the spiritual path is the thought that I have to surrender my ego, I have to give up my ego, I have to destroy my ego. and. Um, it all sounds like a suffering. It sounds like a terrible penance. I've got to give up all this that I'm familiar with. What have I got left at the end? Nothing, they think. Well, if nothing is everything, that's what you've got is everything. You expand your little self, sense of self into infinity. You don't lose anything when you find God. You find yourself in Him. You find that that self which you thought was identified as Kumar or uh, Lakshmi or whatever name you have, you find that that self is 
infinite. You are that self. Not so easy. Well, of course it's not easy. Do you think that this pearl of great price can be just had for pennies in the marketplace? It's something to work for, for sure. But what a wonderful show it is that God, having created this universe, it's all God playing all these parts. When you meditate, try to calm your mind and try to just accept him into your life in deep peace. Concentrate here. This is a very good point. The seat of concentration in the body is right between the two eyebrows. Actually, it's not the forehead. It's the frontal lobe of the brain just behind the eyebrows here. The frontal lobe of the brain is the most advanced part anatomically in the human brain. It's the one part that animals don't have, human beings do. That's why our foreheads go up and animals go back. They don't have this, this uh, particular intellectual faculty. They don't think things through. They sort of watch, but they don't, they don't rationalize. They don't try to understand. This, the center of this is your superconsciousness. The center of the seat of intellect is not just to hear, but it's the seat of superconsciousness. You have three levels of consciousness. Psychologists in the last century and a little bit before were talking about the subconscious. In fact, it was not a new discovery of Freud. It was Immanuel Kant was one, and I believe Baron Leibniz was another who were already talking in the 17th century about the subconscious. But Freud, Sigmund Freud, sort of brought it down to what he tried to think of as a science. But unfortunately, because science has become, uh, has gotten its start in materialism, he tried to make everything material, materialistic. He tried to reduce everything, consciousness itself, to just an expression of the brain. This is what scientists today think, too. They think that the brain produces consciousness. No, no. Consciousness produces the brain. Consciousness produces the atoms. Consciousness produced everything. And that consciousness is what we want to become aware of. Now, there are different levels of consciousness, but the highest, the true level of consciousness is superconsciousness. I've written a book called Superconsciousness, Awaken to Superconsciousness. It's available here in India in the bookshops. And if I do say so, I, I think it's a good book. But anyway, it shows you how you can attain to that state and live more in that state. It's a practical reality. It's not something way up in the clouds. We live by that to some extent all the time. We must learn how to open ourselves to it. And one of the best ways is from here. Another thing is from the heart. It's when the heart and the intellect get combined that you can really lift your consciousness. Without it, it becomes dry. But with heart, with feeling, and with superconscious, with the intellect put together, you attain that level of understanding where you don't know why things work right, but they do. You don't know why you understand, but you do. And it's not false understanding, it's real understanding, because it works. And anything that you try to do, if you use that consciousness, you will see that the flow is right and it works. It's practical. So I urge you, get deeper into your own self. Joy to you.
In India there lived by the banks of a stream A hermit whose prayers chose applause for their theme He gazed at the flowers and he smiled at the sound Then he clapped with delight Lord, he cried, oh, well done Well done, Lord, oh, very well done The mountains that laugh with the gypsy clouds The fields smile to welcome the sun All nature sings praises aloud The fields smile to welcome the sun All nature sings praises aloud the tree stands to show their elation A day on God's earth has begun And ever to heart in creation In speechless wonder is bound And ever to heart in creation In speechless wonder is bound Well done, Lord, oh joy that you've planted in children's hearts, the thrill known in bearing the sun, the hope when a trial departs. The thrill known in bearing the sun, the hope when a trial departs. The gladness of men in their neighbors, of youth in its victories won. Our joys are the proof of your labors. How wonderful, Lord, are your arts. Our joys are the proof of your labors. How wonderful, Lord, are your arts. Well done, Lord, oh, very well done. At last I discovered the mystic key. The world's joy, oh, secretive one. Replies to your sweetness in me. The world's joy, oh secretive one, replies to your sweetness in me. For here in my heart lies the answer, your love shedding light like the sun. All life seems to leap like a dancer, when gazing I see only thee. Seems to leap like a dancer when gazing, I see only me.